You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey everybody, it's Jean Chatsky, and today we, I, am speaking with a woman who is on a mission to make other women, quote, really freaking rich, except replace freaking with the more colorful F word. She is on a mission to make women rich financially, but also enriching our sex lives. Mm. And we can all say a big thank you for that. We are with Cindy Eckert. She's the founder and CEO of Sprout Pharmaceuticals. Hey, Cindy. Hi. Thanks for having me, Jean. Oh, sure. And just for anybody who has not heard of Sprout, although I'm sure people have, Sprout created Addy, which is the first ever FDA-approved drug for low sexual desire in women. And you have also launched something called the Pink Ceiling mm-hmm. Pinkubator, which continues to break barriers by investing in and mentoring other women. And we're going to talk about all these things, including the fact that you always wear pink, which is amazing. (laughs) That's right. Blazing hot pink today. Blazing hot pink. And your nails are such a pretty color. Thank you. I appreciate it. Very pretty (laughs) pink. All right. So let's just start. You've had not a quiet summer. Mm Mm-hmm. No Um, doubt. You're back at the helm of Sprout. So Explain what happened. I know the company raised a huge amount of money under your first bout of leadership. Sure. And then, will you tell it? Okay. (laughs) So it is quite an incredible story. Maybe the first ever drug for women in sex has to be a colorful story. And it absolutely is. Not only our path to ultimate approval and breaking down the door of the first ever for women. There were 26 for men. I thought it was about damn time that women had one. Um, But not only that, but ultimately having what felt like the entrepreneur's dream come true. You know, here I'd finally crossed the finish line of approval and big pharma said, holy cow, she did it. And many showed up um, with the promise of taking on the drug, marching it across the globe, making it broadly, affordably accessible to women. And that was truly the heart of the mission. And so sold the business for a billion dollars after the approval and then ended up sitting on the sidelines a little heartbroken. And heartbroken because the company who acquired Sprout went through their own turmoil internally. Their CEO changed, everything changed, and the drug basically went, in essence, back on the shelf in terms of lack of promotion. And so all of those things I was waiting to sit and watch weren't happening, and I'm not one to sit idly. So I devised a way to go back and ultimately have gotten the drug back for nothing. Uh, The shareholders got to keep the billion dollars, but got it back for a $25 million loan, in fact, to start it. And I'll tell you why. I'd sold a business before. Mm -hmm. Uh, When when you sell businesses, often you get an upfront payment, and then you participate in the the longer-term success. And I had done that one time and written a contract in which there were best efforts provisions. You know, they'll make their best effort to promote it, et cetera. Well, I realized very quickly best efforts can hide a multitude of sins. (laughs) People, it's their word versus your word. Right. So when I went into this contract with Sprout, it was really specific. What did you require them to do? Because I know that 
a problem that was happening yeah. along the way was that insurers were denying coverage sure. and consumers were being overcharged. Sure. So, so what did they not do that they were supposed to do? I'm going to call it basic drug launch, first in class, first in category 101. So my contract was more of how much educational resource would they put out there, how many people would go out into the field and educate OBGYNs about it. And just because of the state of things inside of their business, it wasn't a priority. They were tackling bigger issues at hand. So in the absence of that leadership, a lot of things happened. One, a lack of education of insurers, so they weren't um, covering it. Furthermore, they did what I'll call the pharma playbook, they doubled the price. And when they doubled the price, all of a sudden, we were outside of the norm of what the Viagra-like drugs, Viagra, Cialis, et cetera, men have had coverage for those for 20 years on insurance. And my feeling was at parity pricing, women should have parity coverage. They sort of ruined that equation um, by doubling the price. And so in getting it back, I've cut it back in half. Why do pharmaceutical companies do this? Yeah. I, I This is a little bit of a diversion. Sure. But when I was pregnant with my first child, I got toxoplasmosis from mm. a rare hamburger. Wow. And this was before there were toxoplasmosis drugs yes. on the market. And so I took this drug that wasn't even approved by the FDA yet. I got it for free. Um, but this became the drug that was being sold for such outrageous prices that it became a top headline in the news stories. And we saw it not just with toxoplasmosis drugs, but more um, frequently with the EpiPen. And so why do pharmaceutical companies do this? Oh, it's so broken. I have to tell you, I love the industry for what it can do. I don't love how they get it done. And, you know, if I look at it in so many ways, I think we've thrown out the playbook in Sprout, having the opportunity to have this back in my hands and do it differently. I think I'm testing a lot of those systems, including cutting a drug price in half. And when I you know, said I was going to do it, of course, all conventional wisdom is, no, 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 that nobody does that. But nobody's done that. And the reason they don't do it is because behind the scenes, it's a complicated game. And so even with insurers, they look for rebates Mm -hmm. for drug companies. So a drug company will jack its price way up and then play a game behind the scenes in rebates in order to get coverage positions for products. It's all wrong. And in fact, I think in terms of cutting it in half, I'm creating the ultimate experiment. Will women benefit? Will patients be the beneficiary of better access to coverage? So how long has it been since you got it back and... What is happening now? So literally a month into launch, got it back at the end of December and really started to put together how are we going to put this up and what are we going to do differently? And a couple things became really important to me. Two things, actually. Access, genuinely. The women who need this will have access to it. And the second piece is accurate information. My God, when you say women and sex, people go sideways in terms of (laughs) opinions. And I'd like to just have an evidence-based conversation about it. Um, This is a biological condition. We've known about it since the 70s, and yet societally we're so dismissive around it. So with those two pillars, the first piece of our our strategy was access. I cut the price in half. So when you cut it in half, you cut it from $800 a month to $400 a month. That's still a lot. How much do people get covered? Rubber meets the road, $25 a month. 
with insurance coverage, no more than $99 until your insurer covers it. And what I'm looking at is a landscape in which men have had access to drugs for 20 years. 80% of men with managed care with with uh, insurance basically had access to those at a tier two or tier three copay. So between $25 and $50 a month, and we're going for parity coverage. So we're making sure that you're not paying more than that and we're working on insurers behind the scenes today. What's the reception that you're getting from those insurers? Not the playbook. And it's been very interesting. It's been very interesting to see who will walk into the room and have a clinical conversation with us, who will really understand the drug, and that education needed to happen, and who's really just saying, but where's my rebate? Mm. It's very telling to me uh, and very disappointing. But we're going to keep pushing because this is the change that has to happen in the problem we have today with drug pricing. So we're working on it. How do consumers who are listening to this and yeah. thinking, well, okay, I understand how my rebate works. I don't understand how, from the pharmaceutical side sure. of things, this works. Mm. If I am listening to this and thinking, okay, I, I could use this drug, yeah. how do I get it? How do I get the prescription and how do I get it at that $25 price, yeah. not the $99 price? Perfect. I love that question. So uh, first, let me talk about the channel to get it. You can go to your doctor and pick it up at any retail pharmacy, the normal chain. What I did consider in sort of the two years on the sideline is what's some innovation, what's an imagination here in pharma that's being applied in consumer? And that was a digital path. So I went to telemedicine companies. There's a lot of well-established telemedicine companies. And while we have a complete wall between us, I said, I think women will like to have this conversation from the privacy of their home. I think they'll like to have the drug shipped to their doorstep. What I would ask is just that your entire physician universe become educated. And they said yes. So you can go on to Addy.com. You literally leave our site and go to a telemedicine provider, and you can basically have a conversation with a licensed physician. The media jumped on this, though, and called it the female Viagra. And that's not really how you want women (laughs) to think about this. I know. Right? It's how do you wrap your brain around what this is and what it does to your body? So desire is in the brain. Desire is not a blood flow issue for women. And we know it from brain scan studies. In fact, that was really what ignited me is that study after study after study showed a fundamental difference in women who have this condition of biological lack of desire versus women with the normal ebb and flow of desire. Put them both in a PET scan, expose them to erotic stimuli, their brain lights up totally differently. Wow. And so you have to have this certain brain chemistry balance to respond to sexual cues. And for some women, that has changed biologically, and they need access. I think the problem with female Viagra is the construct that women are on demand. Actually, I can talk to any woman, and they say, nope, not on demand. (laughs) So women get it right away. (laughs) And yet it sticks We're all (laughs) nodding, by the way, except for Charles, who is running running the show back from the board. We are all nodding in this studio. It, It is you know, the idea that it's the same um, is such a shame because it, it makes you think it's zero to 60. And the reality is it works much more like an antidepressant. I'm not saying the women are depressed, but think about the drugs we know that work on brain chemistry. The most common would be an antidepressant. And what we know is that's a restoration effect back to a normal somebody once knew. You don't take an antidepressant to become euphoric. Right. Similarly, 
Addie restores women to a normal ebb and flow of desire they were once happy with. I want to go back and answer your question about how do you make sure your insurer covers it? I'm a consumer. It feels like the great mystery. What happens behind the scenes? Your greatest power is actually with your benefit manager inside of your employer. Your employer has the ultimate power in negotiating with insurers in terms of the plans they offer their employees. And actually, employees have a big say in what's covered and not covered. And you'd be surprised what a small vocal group can do to really change that and open doors for access. So, you know, if you're in a position in which your insurer is not covering something that they should be, start with your benefits manager. Because... As a big group of employees, if you work for a large company, they're spending a lot on this. A lot. And in fact, they might not know. They might not know it's an exclusion. They might not know that anybody cares about it. And so I think that, you know, in the the moment of um, activism, I think in particular, heightened activism among women, I do believe that they're not going to tolerate not having drugs paid for the same as they have been for men. Well, and this is a really good time to be having this conversation, too, because as we head into October— We've got open enrollment. We're having those discussions. We're going to the benefits fairs. And um, if you can get yourself to start to raise the issue, not just of this drug, but all the drugs on your formulary and what's working for you and what's not, that's a really important thing for your benefits manager to know. I want to talk about the pink ceiling. But before we do that, I want to remind everybody that Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Our shared mission is to get you talking about your money and your life and inspiring you to be in the financial front seat. Whether you are just entering the workforce or running a business or taking a break to raise a family or getting ready to retire, Fidelity has tools, it has resources that can help you understand where you are today and help you get where you want to go tomorrow. And you can discover more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are talking with Cindy Eckert, CEO of Sprout Pharmaceuticals, The pink ceiling is a VC fund, an incubator, and a consulting firm all in one. What inspired you to launch it and tell us a little bit more about it? Completely my path through Sprout. And I think that, you know, the tale of two genders was so obvious to me. I'd lived it. I don't look like a pharmaceutical CEO. I'm in blazing hot pink. I'd never fit the mold in the room. I'd never gotten conventional VC funding. And yet to witness that happened to others, to watch what it meant for a woman to advocate not only for herself but for each other really informed the pink ceiling. And I think I looked at female founders like myself who get 2% of venture funding, ridiculous notion that half the population has 2% of the good ideas, and thought my best work going forward is going to be to reach my hand back and pull women to these outcomes faster than I got there myself. This should not be a lonely club. My, my exit should not be a lonely club. And so that's why I say it, it's really a mission to make other women really rich. So what are you looking for? I love yeah. that, by the way, because, <laughs> no, I think unless we say it out loud, then there is some sort of embarrassment or shame Can in wanting it. Can I tell you a story? I want to tell you a story. So when I sold Sprout and had this wonderful invitation to go out and speak to rising stars and big audiences of women, a woman came up to me after I'd been on the stage and she said, you know, I've seen you speak, and I really love that you never talk about your outcomes. The next time I got on stage, I said, hi, I'm Cindy Eckert. I sold my last company for a billion dollars. I thought, 
I'm doing it. I'm yeah. part of the problem of this idea that it's not ladylike to talk about money or that's not what the motivation is. Nobody I've ever met in my life who's truly successful is motivated solely by money. They're on a mission. They're making change. They may be the. They may actually have extraordinary outcomes, but I watch them pay it back, and that's what my greatest pride has been in building and selling businesses: is the ripple effect of ownership. And if I can help other female founders, if I can take a bet on them when they get to these outcomes, they too are going to pay it forward. We've had a number of female founders on this show who have told stories about having to pitch hundreds of times oh, yeah. before getting funding. For sure. So what's your advice to founders or what do you look for in the founders that you get behind? I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record here because I say it a lot, but my advice to female founders specifically is you better be prepared to be underestimated. Walk into the room knowing that and then use it as an element of surprise to kill them with confidence. If you're prepared for it, wait. I you just can want to stop you them. for a second. Yeah, Cindy didn't just say kill him with confidence. She said kill him with competence. That's right. Big difference. It is a big difference. It is go toe to toe. I always knew the data. Like we'll we'll have this dance if you want to have this dance. But it was a you know funny that I knew as soon as I walked in the room in my pink and everything else, I'd been discounted. If I started talking about sex, the ripple of the giggle went across the room. And how was I going to surprise them and bring them back to it? I think when I look for founders today that I'm investing in, there is a certain ingredient, and that's that they have something to prove. If you have something to prove, win or lose, you'll take it to the mat. Mm -hmm. And I think they've got to be wired with it to their core um, to really see it through and to ride the roller coaster ride it is of entrepreneurship. Founders are not the only women today who are underestimated. Oh, so if no you're, question. whether you feel underestimated by a job, by a spouse, mm -hmm. by a community, how do you break through? You have to actually be willing to invite it and that conversation. So I'll give a personal example, pink. Why do we wear pink all the time? I like pink. If you look back at childhood pictures, I'm usually in pink. I love it. But what I realized when I was on the path with Addie is that people called it the little pink pill. And when they said that, they said, aw, the little pink pill. Mm. And it was all but the pat on the shoulder, and that's cute, Cindy. And when they did that, I realized, you know, I really have two choices here. I'm either going to let that frustrate me and I'm going to pull back. Or I'm going to go right for it because that's the conversation we need to be having. And I think with underestimation, if you've anticipated it, if it doesn't happen, great, didn't happen. If it does happen, you're prepared, you're armed basically to come into that and, and change their mind. Well, this is an amazing conversation and an amazing journey. You said when you walked in, I can't believe our paths haven't crossed. I can't I, believe our paths haven't crossed I before either. either. I know. But yeah. I hope they'll cross again. Me too. I'm so appreciative of you having this conversation. It is a conversation we need to be having. Women have a voice. Absolutely. They need power, and money is power. Money is power at the table to make different decisions. And I think we've got to have a more honest, a more open conversation about it and change that, change that narrative. Cindy Eckert, thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll be right back with our mailbag conversation. And just in time for mailbag, as always, Kelly Hultgren is sitting across from me in Hello. the studio. I want to say thank you for that because you found Cindy. Oh, and Catherine, too. And Catherine, too. 
a tag team effort here, but I saw Cindy a couple years ago on a panel on how she dealt with sexism, and one of her answers was kill them with competence, and I got hooked on it and her right away. Yeah, she's fantastic. She can go up on our wall of girl crushes. Yes, we yes. should have a we, wall. We should have a wall of girl crushes. We should. We, we That's a good idea. A, it'll be a big, full wall. Yeah. But I like the idea of the wall. <laughs> All right. All right. What do we have in terms of mailbag questions this week? A couple really good ones today. Our first one is from Augustine. First, I wanted to thank you for everything you do. My very best girlfriend introduced me to your show. We've been friends for 23 years. Oh, I and love that. I know. And she was the maid of honor at my wedding, and her money is just one more thing we can bond over. Huh. I know. Yeah, that gives you, like, the warm fuzzies. It's a really good feel. Yeah. I'm writing because I'm freaking out a little bit. I have about $20,000 in credit card debt, most of which is from wedding expenses and a cross-country move for a high-paying job that didn't end up working out. I thought, with a master's from Georgetown, I would be heading into a fairly well-paying field, but it's looking like I will be admitted to a Ph.D. program in economics in the fall, which I'm very excited about but will only pay about eighteen to 24000 My question is this. How should I go about paying down my debt? I have about 75000 in stocks and 16000 in retirement savings. Should I liquidate some of one or more of these accounts, forego my PhD and try to get a higher paying job, take out a student loan and use it to pay down my credit cards, start a side hustle, apply for a debt relief program, sell my eggs for some extra cash? Oh, my God. Help in all caps. <laughs> Augustine. I have also Googled how much one of my eggs costs. So, Okay, that's another – that is just another <laughs> – topic altogether. Here, Augustine, here's what I think. And I don't want you to freak out. I get why you're freaking out. There was a lot to unpack in your question. But I want you to separate the two decisions. You said, at one point, you said, forego my PhD program. Let's just focus in on that for a second and talk about why you are getting this PhD. Do you want this PhD? Would you rather put the PhD program on pause for a year and see if you could find yourself another better paying job that is a better fit? My father was a college professor, and I know from watching him shepherd doctoral students through the process how much work this is. And so I don't think anybody should go into a PhD program that they are not totally devoted to because not only are you putting yourself on track to have a minimal income for the next four potential years, maybe more, maybe less, depending on the program itself, but it is a freaking lot of work and blood and sweat and tears. And so do me a favor and make sure that you're not doing this because it's the default. You should do this because you really want it. And if you really want a PhD in economics, go get that PhD in economics. I am sure that it will serve you well. It sounds like the 75000 that you have in stocks is not in a retirement account, which means that you could access it without penalty. That's where I would get the money to pay off the credit cards if you don't have enough money for it to spill off your regular income. I wouldn't just sit on 20000 in credit card debt because it could quickly become 30000 or 40000 And then I would look for some sort, if you can take it on, of a minimal side hustle to get your income to the point where you can live on 
what you're bringing in, Mm -hmm. which will mean living very lean, Mm -hmm. maybe a roommate, um, and also um, keeping a very, very tight lid on your expenses. Wow. Thank you for writing in, Augustine. Thank you. And thanks to your friend for sharing her money. We love that. And we'll do one more from Jennifer. We have two daughters, one who is entering high school this fall and one who is going into seventh grade. Sadly, we have not opened a 529 or savings plan for their college education. We live in a very expensive part of Connecticut and have struggled to put aside money. We have several 401ks, which we need to merge, a small pension, and a smallish emergency fund. But of course, we don't want to use that for college as you can't borrow for retirement. Thank you for listening very, very closely. (laughs) Pause, pause, because I knew you would like that. We have looked into opening a 529 in Connecticut to obtain the tax deduction, but the Connecticut plan doesn't get highly rated on savings for college and or Morningstar. We are happy to look into another state's plan and lose the tax deduction, but I'm worried that since we only have four years to save for the first child, is the tax-free growth benefit that helpful? Frankly, I'm also worried about the stock market with all the political instability. So we've looked into the America Express savings account that gets 1.75% AP which is a good rate and it's safe, but our tax rate at 40% reduces that interest earned pretty quickly. We are confused as to what the best course of action is for our situation. So my really long-winded question is, what do you think is the best path for us to take? So let me just say, I think that you're focused on all the right things. And you are absolutely right that just like you want to take risk off the table as you get closer to retirement. As your kids get closer to college, you want to take risk off the table there. So when you're looking at the Connecticut plan, it may be that it is not rating highly because of its investment performance. You don't have to worry so much about the investment performance if you put the money in a money market fund or in something else where it's going to not be invested in stocks, which it sounds like you don't want to do anyway and probably shouldn't do anyway with only four years to go until that first college payment. Now, keep in mind, you've got more time for the second child. You've also got more years to run for the second child because it's not just the first year of college, it's four years of college. So if you've got eight years before the second child goes to college, you're really looking at 12 years by the time they get out. That's a lot of years. I would probably look at Connecticut for the first child. There may be a limit on the tax deduction anyway. Invest that money for safety. And then if you can do more in terms of what you're contributing, find a better plan based on the ratings for the second child. You also have the ability to move money once a year from one state's plan to another. So down the road, when you're no longer contributing for the first child to the Connecticut plan, you can move the money when you move it into a safer option to Connecticut and make your latter contributions for the second child there. Does that make sense? I'm sure it does. I... Could you follow me? I followed. No, I followed. Because when Kelly's eyes start to look around the room (laughs) for everybody who's listening, and I start to think, "Uh uh-oh, if I'm not making sense to Kelly, then I'm probably not making sense to any of you. What I'm essentially saying is get the tax deduction Mm -hmm. for that first child. Don't take the stock market risk and put the money into the investment account that is not well rated. Just put it into safety where you're going to get not necessarily Mm – you're going to get a money market return, but you're not taking any sort of risk on that money. 
And then for the second child, you put the money in a plan where the investments are performing better because you've got more time and because there's a limit on the tax deduction that you're going to get in any year anyway. That was helpful. Okay, good. The beauty of a podcast is people could go back and listen to it. They can rewind. I'm in real time, so looks of confusion are going to be more natural. All right. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Jean. Thanks, everybody, for your questions. Before we sign off this week in our weekly Thrive segment, let's talk about some big little lies. No, not the HBO show, although we are very excited about Meryl Streep in the second season. No, this big little lie is what some heterosexual couples say they're making when she earns more. According to new research from the Census Bureau, which compares census data to tax forms, when the wife earns more than the husband, both husbands and wives tend to lie about their respective incomes. The husbands inflate theirs and the wives downplay theirs. Cindy Eckert would hate this study. Why is this happening? In 2018, well, probably because of the antiquated social norms that still persist. And these are the same norms responsible for the fact that higher-earning women, women who earn more than their spouses, still assume a greater share of the housework than men do. And the norms that have women taking on a greater share of housework like tasks at the office. My advice, if you earn more money, start owning the fact that you earn more money. There is nothing wrong with that. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Cindy Eckert for a fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of the beautiful CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with Morningstar's Steve Wendell. We'll talk soon. <laughs>